Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff, one of the co-hosts of the show, and uh, so are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer, who are with me right now. Hey, team. Hey, guys. Hey, guys. Evan, who is on the program this week? This week, my guest is Roxana Asgarian. She is a reporter based in Texas. She currently covers law and courts for the Texas Tribune. She's also written for magazines like Texas Monthly. She's written for the Washington Post. But she also has this new book out called We Were Once a Family. And if you haven't heard about this book yet, and you're a person who reads nonfiction, you will hear about this book, I guarantee you. I didn't know the story of this book going in. I was pretty blown away by it and by her writing about it. And I really, really wanted to talk to her about everything that went into it. Just to set it up a little bit, and I want to say this is pretty difficult subject matter, in 2018, there was this horrific accident. You guys might've seen this in the news, but somehow it passed me by with an SUV and a couple and their six children drove off a cliff and everyone was killed. And the parents were white, the children were black and had been adopted. The police concluded that the car was probably driven intentionally off the road, making it an even more uh, horrific story. And there were allegations that the adoptive parents had abused the children. It was a huge national story. And nobody really looked at why the children had ended up in adoption in the first place and where they came from and who their birth families were. And Roxana did that. And she uncovered an entirely different and extremely difficult story, which she writes about very beautifully and sensitively. But the reporting is extraordinary. And uh, it was great to be able to walk through with her how she did that. I was aware of that story, but I was not aware of that book. Sounds very interesting. Uh, we are brought to you in partnership with Vox Media, who help us produce this show. Thanks to everyone over at Vox. And now here's Evan with Roxana Asgarian. Roxana, welcome to the Longform Podcast. Thank you for having me. I was very, I don't know the right word, like entranced by the book. It was a book that I desperately wanted to put down. I don't know if I've had this experience. Like I really wanted to put your book down, but I couldn't. Um, and I don't know if that, like it's the highest compliment I could give. I feel like, cause the book tackles incredibly difficult subjects and like things that are even painful to read about and think about. And before we get into it, I kind of want to talk about how you became the reporter and writer that could report and write about these topics because I feel like there's a lot that goes into being able to do that. Yeah. So I sort of wanted to start way back and 
find out what was your sort of earliest memory of wanting to be a journalist or wanting to be a writer? Hmm. So when I was like seven, my dad, <laughs> my dad's from Iran. He's an immigrant and um, he's a really bookish guy. So we would have these family reading sessions and the the book choices were like Oliver Twist or he was really into Jack London short stories <laughs> and Chekhov. Mm. <laughs> oh, he's not messing around. Yeah, no, and they were really intense. Like, and I remember them very vividly because they hurt my feelings. <laughs> and there was like a family joke where I would tell, like he would tr keep trying to bring it up and I would say, I don't want to be reminded. <laughs> And they thought that was really funny, which is so sad. Like as a grown up, I'm like, okay, maybe, maybe not with the Jack London when you're seven. <laughs> but I wanted to be a writer, like ever since that period of time, I used to do like short stories and stuff, but I didn't really know that I wanted to be a journalist until college, I think, mm -hmm. because, um, I've always gotten along with people and like people always wanted to talk to me and it took me a little while to realize like what that was about, like that that was a skill that I had because it just seemed like sort of random. And I figured that was a way to do writing as a job, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, I know there are other jobs that you could do, but it seems sort of like a good combo for my skill set. Yeah. You could have gone to the sales. <laughs> Or like I had this brief moment where I was like, I could be a con artist probably. <laughs> because, you know, I would just, there would be like, there's situations that I would find myself in that were unusual. So yeah, I guess that's sort of the short answer. The trauma stuff, I guess, is, you know, because I think I started working on stories about people who had experienced trauma probably a few years before I started working on this book. Mm -hmm. And I realized that a lot of people who've been through really tough stuff just want to be heard. And I think that's what therapy can be really good for. But a lot of people in the world do not have access to therapy. And even like in this case, like with kids who've been in foster care, they don't trust therapy. They don't trust therapists because they were always forced to do it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like that skill set of just being able to uh, hear people, it comes in handy there. And you took a path from, you know, college and then journalism school, if I'm not mistaken, yes. here in, in New York. And did you feel like you were taught skills related to that? Like, were, were you taught how to sit with someone who's experienced trauma? Were you taught how to conduct that kind of interview? Or did that only come from starting to do those stories. Yeah, that's interesting. I feel like younger people who are in college and grad school now, I think they're starting to really learn about like trauma reporting and trauma-informed reporting. Um, that was not part of my... So I went to journalism school at the University of Texas at Austin, and then I went to grad school at CUNY. They like to call it CUNY Newmark now. <laughs> So, uh, you know, I think I feel like I got like a traditional journalism education. After grad school, I did some breaking news reporting at the Daily News. And that was sort of my 
like crash course on trauma reporting. I mean, led by myself because no one else was, you know, a lot of the people who would do breaking news reporting are like these grizzled old guys who are very jaded and have seen like mm -hmm. the craziest stuff, you know? And I remember, I mean, like I'm pretty sensitive, you know? So I would be in these situations and I'd be thinking about like, what's my approach here? What do I feel comfortable with? And then like, what is me feeling nervous? Because that's part of it, right? Like when you walk up to someone and say like, can you tell me this terrible thing just happened to you? There's a piece of it where like normal human behavior is not to do that. <laughs> so you have to yeah. push past that, yeah. you know? But then there's like, I saw some approaches that felt really bad, mean, not helpful, you know, traumatizing. So it was sort of a process of me understanding like what's the right boundary in that situation, you know? In the early days, did you have bad experiences? Like, I mean, when you do that type of reporting, you inevitably encounter people who don't want to talk or who are even angry that they're being asked these yeah. questions in these moments. Did you have many of those experiences? Yeah, I had some. And I think that that's actually really important. <laughs> like, I'm glad I have that experience. And every once in a while, I'll have someone just freak out at me still. <laughs> and it's kind of like it keeps you honest in a way. Because, you know, they don't owe you anything. <laughs> like, people don't owe you anything as a journalist. And it happened in the book, too. Like, there were people that I really wanted to include because their perspective was really valuable. And they just weren't ready or willing to talk, you know. Or they talked off the record, but they wouldn't talk on the record. That happened. Mm -hmm. And I did upset people. You know, that's part of the job, but it's also like the way that you go about it can really, everyone reacts to trauma differently. And some people really do want to talk about it. And I think the families in this book really wanted to talk about it. And it felt like no one was even paying attention to them. Yeah. I want to get into that. I want, first, I want you to, can you paint a little bit of a picture of what sent you back to Texas to kind of start your career? Or you had done a little bit of reporting in New York, but yeah. to kind of like center your career in Texas. Well, the short answer is my husband got a job in Houston. The long answer is like, I really love Texas. And so I was kind of trying to find a way to get back. We moved to Houston, which is an amazing city. Big city, diverse in the way that New York is like diverse but very different vibe, <laughs> very different pace, you know? Yeah. And New York is, my husband's also a journalist, so it's hard for two journalists <laughs> to make a living. And we were both starting out, you know? So we were both like kind of at the bottom of the ladder. So it was a lot easier to do that in Houston. I mean, easier in some ways financially, but then there's also, Houston is a pretty small media climate, you know? There's a few places between the two of us, we went through all of them. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what led me to freelancing because I was just like, you know, I want to do this kind of work. Like I started doing long form stories and I was like, I wasn't able to kind of grow anymore. I was at a city magazine in Houston and I was like, mm -hmm. I need to be able to like hear a no and go to somewhere else <laughs> until I get a yes. You know, I felt like I was being held back a little bit. Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. 
If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly. The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. And so describe this call that you got. So this comes up in the beginning of the book. So you get a call about this accident, which at the time was, I guess, perceived to be an accident or at least possibly an accident. Yeah. But could you just explain the very basics of the story and where sort of where you were when you, you got this call? Sure. Okay. So I was really pretty new in freelancing when this happened. There was a family that drove off a cliff in California. It was two white ladies and their six black adopted children. So I had heard when that happened, partly because I have a friend, Shane Dixon Cavanaugh. He lives in Portland and he writes for the newspaper there. Uh, I know him from grad school. So he was coming out with these stories that were like, you know, increasingly alarming about the parents and, you know, their sort of history with CPS. And one of the kids was in a viral photo for hugging a cop at a protest. And so everyone was like, oh, we kind of know them because they were this, the family was big and mixed and out there and he would hold this free hug sign, Devante would. So they were pretty well known. And so, yeah, I had sort of seen it as like a reader and was just like, oh my gosh, you know, but then I had seen in one of those stories that at least some of the kids came from Harris County, which is where I live. And at that point I was like, hmm, because I had done a couple stories on the child welfare system in Texas. And I was like, well, you know, like a lot of my wheels started turning about that. Um, so then Shane just called me on the phone and he said they got a, a document that made clear who the birth family was because Texas wasn't sharing any of that information. That was a part of it. It's like no one knew where the kids came from for a while. Mm -hmm. So um, they had gotten a tip from because the, the lawyer for the family had seen a news story and had put two and two together and figured it out. So yeah, that's right when I got involved. Shane called and asked me if I could go meet with the birth family and like do a quick breaking news story. And that that's sort of this first moment in the book where it really hit me about the type of reporting you were about to be doing because you know there are these people involved. There's the lawyer 
And then the lawyer actually represents the aunt of the kids who had tried to get custody of them. And you basically go just show up, it seems like, to try and interview the aunt. Yeah. And I want to know when you find that address and you drive out there, like, how do you steal yourself for that moment? I mean, this is not very long after she has found out that these kids have yeah. been killed. Yeah, it was like a day or two after she had heard. So I just kind of tapped back into the daily news mode because I did a lot of stuff like that with the daily news. But the difference is, and I was actually kind of assuming there was going to be like a, a scrum of reporters because that's what often breaking news is like. It's you and it's every other big outlet in the area, you know, and you guys kind of work together as like a little competitive, but you also kind of cooperate. And so I was kind of assuming that that might be the case. And it was not the case. It was just me. Um, She wasn't home right away. So I kind of sat there for a little while and she lived, she passed away um, in a housing project. And this was true for a lot of the birth family. Everyone was sort of like, what is this lady doing here? <laughs> but, you know, my thing, the 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 sort of ethos that I developed doing breaking news was like, I, you ask. You ask, and if they say no, then you respect their no, you know? And with Priscilla, I waited for her to come home, and when she came home, she immediately said she didn't want to talk, but you could tell she was sort of like physically, like grief was very overwhelming her in that moment. And, you know, I just said like, I'm just trying to get a sense of who these kids were. And she invited me into her house. I think that Shane and the Oregonian folks were kind of assuming that it would be like, you get a con- like a comment, you know, like, oh, this was so terrible. <sighs> You know, like yeah, the things that you read in the breaking news stories where it's just like some kind of like exclamation, you know. But what I ended up getting was like a lot of actually like the family members sat down with me in their homes and, you know, really laid it out for me. And did you already at this point sort of were you monitoring the direction that the coverage was taking in terms of the coverage focusing on? the adoptive parents and did you immediately see oh there's a whole story opening up here or did it take a while to get into that so i met with priscilla and she gave me the names of the father figure and of the birth mom and so i met them like it took two days right to do that reporting but when i started talking to the birth mom i was like this is definitely a bigger story than like a quick breaking news story. And the thing that really struck me is she was there and she had her best friend with her and two of the kids' biological father. And they were talking about the case, you know, the case where they lost their kids. And they mentioned the name of the judge. And I thought that was kind of odd. Mm. And I wrote it down in my notebook. And I was just like, that's kind of, I mean, because this was 10 years ago, you know? I was like, I feel like that's kind of unusual maybe that they just, you know, remembered the judge by name and the best friend was like google him because his daughter killed somebody (laughs) basically and so when i when i googled that i was like okay this is definitely i felt like um and it's also just the thing where like at that point really 
reporting on the child welfare system was just so rare. I feel like we're getting mm -hmm. to the point now where like we're seeing the big ProPublica stories, you know, and the big like deep dives and they're awesome and it's amazing and it's a long time coming. But at that point, I don't think people were really thinking about this story as a child welfare system story. Yeah, it's almost like, I mean, I didn't really follow the coverage at the time, but just looking back now, no one really asks, like, where did these kids come from? Like, why were they adopted? Yeah, that's, I mean, when I was doing the breaking news story, I wasn't sure because, we, you know, we were the ones who got the first interview of that family. But I, I quickly realized, because I was like, I'd like to keep in touch with you. I'd like to do a longer thing. And I quickly realized while talking to them that like, I mean, they were getting people calling them for sort of what I was saying, like calling them for the quote. And I had heard from Nathaniel, the father figure, he wasn't their biological dad, but he raised the kids until they were taken away. I heard about Dante, who's the older brother of three of the kids. And that's when I realized that, because if you go through the child welfare system, you're allowed to request your entire case file. So I had written a story where I used someone else's foster care case file. And so I had gone through it. It's kind of confusing. It's a lot of information. It's all jumbled together. And I knew from doing that last story that it's often grouped by mom. So I had a suspicion that the information on the siblings would also be in Dante's file. Yeah, we should maybe... Lay out for people kind of how extraordinary this is, that there were six kids that were adopted by this couple in Minnesota that eventually ended up in Oregon that eventually drove off the cliff. And they were all from Texas, three of the kids from one mom and three kids from another mom, completely separate. And just truly extraordinary that there was an older brother. For the second set of kids, there was an older brother who, correct me if I'm describing this incorrectly, but he wasn't adopted into that family because he had been put in a facility and separated from his siblings at that time. Yes. Yeah. He was the oldest. And so he was old enough to kind of understand what was happening when he was getting removed from home. So he, he was, he was uh, acting out. So he was having behavioral issues as they called it. And that's why he was separated from his siblings. But um, for him, who's like, you know, when they, when they finally went, like the last removal happened when he was 10 and he was really dying to get back with his siblings. And he didn't really understand that that was a permanent thing. Yeah. I mean, the, I'm sure you'll encounter this a lot talking to people about the book, but like, if you have children, I mean, those parts are just so, that's what I meant by like, I wanted to put the book down, like imagining that kid at that age, all he wants to do is reunite with his siblings, his caregivers, and like he's not even told that they're adopted away. And he has this one meeting where he's supposed to go meet them and they don't show up and yeah. no one explains why and then he never sees them again. It's like, yeah, it's that... like too much. It's too much to process. Yeah. Well, I, you know, on the point about being too much to process it really it really is like when i first read through the case file i had to sort of sit it down for like months <laughs> before i was able to go back and like because i just read it like top to bottom 
and it's thousands of pages. It's like 4,000 pages. There's a lot of redactions, but um, because, you know, I was getting to know him at the time and he was really hard to get to know. He has a real big, I mean, I've never had that kind of experience. I For a long time, I didn't know if there was going to be a story, like if we would end up doing a story because I couldn't get him to sit for an interview, but he kept inviting me to come over. So it wasn't like he was saying he didn't want to and I was bothering him. It was more like he wanted to in theory. (laughs) And so we had to really build trust in a way that the process of building trust helped me to really fully understand how deeply he was affected by his life and his childhood. You know, because it just felt like he really had problems, has problems trusting people. Yeah. And he, I mean, you, you say in the book, he, at some point he says to you, what, what good does this do me to tell you my story and have you tell my story? Yeah. How did you answer that? Um, well, like I, I really felt that that was a breakthrough in our relationship because it was out in the open, you know, like we had this, I was really kind of earnest I just made my case. I said, I feel like you're a part of this story and that no one knows that you're a part of this story and that they should know because what happened to you was not okay. And, you know, I think he knows that. He knows that CPS did him wrong, you know. And by that time, you could definitely see in the coverage of the Hart family that there was no interest really in going into really any of the birth family's situations, which was, that's when I was starting to get angry. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I felt like, you know, I felt like Dante needed to know that his story was really important and that it could hopefully be part of like some kind of larger point. I mean, obviously there's no... There's nothing that will ever, like, take away the tragedy that happened, you know? Like, it's just such an awful, awful thing. But, like, some accountability or some people just at least feeling bad about their behavior or their decisions. Like, the fact that it was, it felt like that wasn't going to happen just felt like it was not okay for me. Yeah, and, I mean, I feel like that's a in some ways a line that reporters people often ask what's in it for me and they say well you get to tell your story and like your story will be out there your side of the story will be represented but i feel like this is a case where you actually did find that i mean his story was multiplied over all of these other people and through this particular court and there was this larger story that this represented like kids being taken away yeah. without much thought rather than trying to help the parents keep the kids and being put into the system and, and churned out. Were you surprised at the extent to which when you came to, you know, encountered the judge and the court and the kind of corruption that was happening there, that all that was there too? Yes. I mean, I think the, it almost sounds, someone who was an early reader of it was like, I actually had to stop and Google all this stuff. Cause I was like, is this real? <laughs> Yeah, like how could this be happening out in the open? Yeah, and it's funny because um, 
there was one reviewer uh, at Texas Observer, and she was like, "Oh yeah, everyone like everyone at Texas knows Pat Shelton because it was he was in the news." That's the judge. Yeah, the judge. And I didn't know anything about him until the best friend of the birth mom was like, hey, Pat Shelton was a judge. And I was like, huh, that's weird. I just Googled at him and I was like, oh my gosh. Like, it's just like open racism. And that was like corroborated by several because, you know, part of the issue with the courts is that there's very few attorneys who specialize on in this kind of law. So they all work together. So- once you just crack into, you know, that world, it's not very big. And so, yeah, I heard a lot of stories about that guy. It felt outlandish. But I think with Dante, I felt like this story in a lot of ways was like really able to encapsulate so many of the ways that the child welfare system is fucked up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that's because of it like being multi-state, right? Because it's a patchwork system, right? So you could say, oh, Texas must be crazy, you know, which people do <laughs> do say that anyway. But it's not just Texas, right? It's Minnesota. It's Oregon. And I think with Dante's story, it's like because he spent so much time in the foster care system, I think he has this experience that long-term foster youth have that's so like crucial to understanding the depth of the harms that the system perpetrates against kids because those kids those like quote unquote bad kids it might sound like oh he went to a treatment center it's like he went to an institution that was staffed by people who were making ten dollars an hour where he got his shoulder dislocated (laughs) by a staff member and i asked him about that and he was like Oh, well, actually, I like that woman. <laughs> like, she was my favorite because she cared about me and she would buy me sneakers, you know? Yeah. And it's just like, um, I really wanted to show that part of it too, because I feel like those are some of the most isolated kids in the system. It feels like there's a real subtlety to a lot of it where there are all these people in the system many of whom are kind of doing their best, whether they're child protective services people, like they do care, yeah. but they're kind of trapped. And then there are these ones like the judge who do not seem to care, or at least whatever they're caring about, it's not actually the best interest of the kids. Yeah, I mean, it's it also is so complex. Like sometimes there's no good answer. Like the parents are in a difficult situation. The kids might be better off here or there. Like each situation is so difficult. How did you kind of grapple with the complexity of these situations? Well, I I feel like in some ways we sort of individualize all of our decisions. So the judge is supposed to take into consideration the best interest of the child. That's the legal standard. But that's such a, I mean, that's so loaded. (laughs) (laughs) you know what it like it's subjective of course but you're also you know the judges are like middle class white people right so what's the best interest of the child to a person who has never lived in poverty to a person who's never experienced racism so i feel like part of what this story really pointed out in a, a very obvious way was that there are actually like decisions being made on the individual level that are racist. (laughs) 
I mean, like if you look at at how the adoptive parents were treated in the child welfare system, it was like they were deferred to at every step. And some of the stuff that the caseworkers were investigating was like underfeeding, physical abuse, you know, the stuff that's supposed to really matter. And then you look over at the sort of neglect side. It's like very rules focused. So like the birth families are kind of given this maze to get through, right? Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of complexity in each case, but I also feel like there's some biases that really shape, because we have like data, like high level data that shows disproportionality, right? And you can look at that data and you can say the word disproportionality (laughs) and you can say, ah, we're working on it. We're just taking like cultural competency training or whatever, right? But it's also like a good example is when the rights, the parental rights are terminated. Like no one told the birth families that their kids were murdered. There's no legal obligation to do that because they're not their family anymore, legally. But the idea that a legal distinction could change how you feel about being a mom to your real children. (laughs) Birth moms don't think of themselves as not moms anymore, you know, but the system thinks of them in that way. Or even in this case, that the moms, in at least one case, and maybe both, were given the impression that if they severed their own parental rights, then their kids would end up with people that they knew would have a chance to adopt them. And instead, they went into a system that they were adopted by strangers. It's just like you're like tearing at the book being like, but how do I stop this? You know, but of course, this must happen every, every day. Yeah, it's um, because once your rights are severed, it's just like, you don't have a say, you know. I think Tammy said that too, because Tammy, she's the birth mom of the other three kids. And I found her six months after the crash. And I ended up telling her family what happened because they didn't know. (laughs) And no one had told them. And they were still trying to identify one of the kids' remains. And they needed her to do a DNA test. And so she did that. She did it immediately. Like, I told her. And then, like, the next day, she had already called the Mendocino County Sheriff. So what do I need to do? You know? So then they got the results and they called her and she missed the call and they immediately sent out a press release, which is a big national case at this point. And so there's all these people who are following along. And so they told the country before they told Tammy that her DNA was a match and that it was actually her daughter. Yeah, it's it's real um, kind of casual cruelty that comes up a lot in the in the book, she's a good example, I think, of something else I wanted to ask you about, which is you talk about this in the in like the preface to the book that you became involved in the story yeah. in ways that a reporter might not always. And this was I don't know if this was the first spot in the book, but this is one that I remember where you told her, but then you sort of realized that she was not ready for this to be public information. So you had a scoop. Mm. And you kind of sat on the scoop. Explain a little bit what you saw and like why you decided to do that. Yeah. When I first talked to Tammy, she was um, 
she was suicidal, like when she had hurt. And she struggles with mental illness already. You know, that's part of her history. But, um, you know, I didn't know any of this because I didn't know her yet. Um, Mm -hmm. But it was like, it just seemed very obvious that that's, you know, that there was a mental health crisis happening. So I actually waited. So look, I guess I talked to her in October for the first time. We ran a story in late February. So that's a good long Mm. while. And I had told her like, look, I'm going to wait. And well, first of all, I like a group had reached out to me when I reported on the first birth mother that I found that provides therapy. So basically I just paused everything and like hooked her up with these people to get a therapist where she was locally. Cause I mean, I can't imagine how I would take that news. Not well, I'm sure, you know, and she was already struggling with so much in her life. Yeah. It's weird. Cause it was like, I know what the journalists, like this happened to me a lot in the book where I was like, I know what the sort of straightforward journalism ethics professor would say, you know, and I, it just didn't feel like it applied to the situation. And I definitely seeing people be so dehumanized and like just the lack of dignity that they were shown, I didn't want to be a part of that. So, you know, I just, I told her like, let me know if anyone reaches out to you, basically, you know, and I'll let you know if I think it's going to happen anyway, because there were some public records in her case. So I was like, if a reporter were to get to that point where they got public records, they might go with a story without talking to her, you know? Yeah. So I just told her like, there's this, because I found her in law enforcement records that they had released to the public which is funny because the law enforcement <laughs> didn't look very closely at those or something. I don't know. It was very odd. I, I really didn't think I was going to. Yeah. I mean, I was not thinking I was going to be the person to like tell this family what happened. I really didn't think until the moment where I realized that they didn't know, you know, that wasn't like it, it had been six months. Well, and the, there's kind of like two kinds of ways, at least that are categorized in the book of how you end up kind of involved with people. One is like you're spending so much time with them and they're experiencing grief and trauma and you're trying to navigate around that and be sensitive to that like you were with Tammy. And then there's this other situation, which is more with the adoptive parents, where they kind of start using you as a go-between and you're trying to help the adoptive parents. Can you describe that situation? And, And again, like... How did you decide to navigate that? Because I imagine there was a moment where you could have said like, you know what, I'm not getting involved here. Yeah. You could talk to me or not, but I'm not the conduit for this situation. Yeah. So in the very first conversations that I had with both birth mothers, they had made it clear that they want the remains of their kids. Like, where are they now? Can we have them back? And Tammy specifically had asked me like, if you do talk to Jen and Sarah's parents. Can you ask about that? Can you let me know? Because Tammy had heard from the Mendocino sheriff that the next of kin was the parents of Jen and Sarah, because again, the birth families don't have any legal rights. So 
I told her I would reach out <laughs> and I did reach out to both families and Jennifer's dad got back to me and he did not have actually the remains in his possession besides his own daughter, but he expressed a desire for them to have some of the remains. And it was like a really weird situation because Jen and Sarah had been estranged from their parents for a long while, like this basically since they got married, I think. And so it wasn't like a typical in-law situation where the parents of, of the women knew each other really. So there was a lot of like weird animosity between the two families. There was blame. Their grief was really tinged by the, I, I don't know, like imagine being a parent whose kid does something so terrible, you know, it's like a different type of grief. And so it was a feat of coordination is the issue. And I felt like if the birth families were going to get the remains, no one else really was in the position to make it happen because none of these people were talking to each other directly. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, that was another, it took me, it was about a year, to be honest, between when we first started talking about it and when I actually went up to South Dakota and got a portion of the remains of the kids. Um, and I ended up doing it because Doug, who's Jin's dad, he just like flat out asked me, like, can you please be the person who makes this happen? And, you know, I knew that I could. And I also knew that if I didn't, it, it just wouldn't happen. And it just felt like it's something, it's like one concrete thing that I could do, you know, because it can feel really extractive as a journalist to be with people, with your sources for so long, it's like a one-sided intimacy where you know all of the worst things that ever happened to them. And then you get to write the story. <laughs> like it's a huge leap of faith, you know, it's really vulnerable for them. And I felt like I owe the story something besides their feelings, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like I couldn't guarantee that they're gonna <laughs> like it. I don't know if they're gonna like it how they're portrayed, you know? But I know that I could do this thing that's like a real concrete gift to them, you know, that I don't think they could have achieved otherwise. And so, yeah, it was just, a, it was like a moment where it was like, I know what the journalism ethics might be. And then I know what like being a good person <laughs> is to myself, you know? And I just didn't want to do, I, I wouldn't have felt right. <laughs> to tell him outright, no, I, mean, I don't feel comfortable doing it. You know, even though it was like extremely painful for me. And I also had the kids with me for like a month and a half because it was right before Christmas when I went to do it and I needed to get it to the families in person. Mm. So yeah, it was really, really, I mean, I'm writing a story about the kids. So it was like really intense to have some of their ashes with me for that period of time. Yeah, I can't imagine. And how do you like manage your own mental health during <laughs> those times? I mean, in that situation. I sort of feel like that was the hardest part of the entire project. Because I feel like there were so many pieces of this that were so traumatic that they kind of like shorted out my nervous system. <laughs> And I'm a person who 
Like I've experienced childhood trauma, which I think is a big reason why I was drawn to this story and why the people involved felt comfortable with me. I mean, I didn't, I didn't really disclose that in any detailed way or anything, but um, I sort of get how it feels to, to be little and have something terrible happen to you and to feel like maybe you're on your own with it, which I think was a kind of a through line in this across like everybody's life. So that being said, I think it was like a positive thing for the story that I had that experience, but it was extremely difficult on a personal level because it was just I, I like I have PTSD. So a lot of the work in the story was emotional work to process the material so that I could even see it clearly rather than just being like totally overwhelmed by the enormity of the pain. And is that something you do? You don't have to go into it if you don't want to, but do with a therapist or do on your own or? Yeah. So I started doing trauma therapy. I have a therapist for a long time, like a talk therapist. And she sort of recommended it because she's like, this is like sort of classic PTSD stuff. And so I started doing this thing. It was during the pandemic. So it's like similar to EMDR, but it's something that's easier to do remotely. And it's called brain spotting. And so I got this woman and I actually, uh, I still see her like, we do it just every once in a while when things are really intense. And it, it basically helps you kind of process trauma through not your conscious level, <laughs> like through the part of your brain that is in the survival mode. And that's been super helpful because like, I can get my head around all of this. It's just like my body that's like, Ugh, you know? It's also helped me understand trauma so much because I've gone through this process. But it does also, it, I think ultimately the material is so, it just is what it is. It's so sad. It's so heavy. And I think that one of my major goals with the book was to make it readable, like quickly readable. So I thought a lot about the pacing because I was like, mm. I don't think people would want to sit there. I, I know, I, you know, I did sit there <laughs> for a long time with it. And I just know that that's like, I want people to understand it and to feel it, but I don't want them to have to draw it out. Well, one of the things that also kind of like refracts into this story are the way that other people have portrayed it and written about it and how it's appeared in the media. And you said earlier that that, you know, you were at times angry at the coverage that you were seeing that was ignoring this whole other side of the story. But did you have a fear that that coverage would overwhelm your ability to get the story out, that people wouldn't want to hear this other side of the story? Or was it always clear to you that if you could capture it, people would want to know it? I think both of those things are true. Like, I felt like I knew that I could make this case, but I also felt like I mean, I was a freelancer at this time. So this is a lot of what freelancers deal with anyway, right? Is like, yeah, it's a constant pitch and a no or like a silence, you know, that happened a lot with a story because I wrote three stories before I got the book deal. And different outlets, right? Yeah. Two of the stories were at The Appeal. And then the story about Dante ran in the Washington Post. And that was like shortly before I got the deal. Yeah. <laughs> 
so what were we saying? I'm sorry. <laughs> whether it. whether people would would want to hear this side of the story after oh, I mean, right, there was right, a, right. there was a podcast about it. There were stories about oh, God, the, yeah. the adoptive family, you know. They were there was I'm not saying in a pejorative way, yes. but it, it became like a true crime story. I mean, maybe I do mean in a pejorative way a little bit, but like it just became a phenomenon. Yes. It was sort of motivating, I think, in a way, because I I was like, none of these have it, right? Like that's just how I felt. There wasn't anything and and the people and the outlets that did have some things, it was like all my <laughs> reporting, which is good, you know, like and I'm glad that it was part at least a part of it. But I felt like there was just so much more to it that people weren't seeing. I did have like a New York Times editor tell me that <laughs> I had pitched Tammy's story, which was again an exclusive, right? And he said, well, we might put like a couple paragraphs of that into another person's story who's working on something, but we can't like guarantee you a byline. It was like, I think they offered me $150. <laughs> so I was like, mm, that'd be like, but I got on the phone with him and he said, like, you know, I just want to say, like, everybody knows that foster care is fucked up. We want to focus on how these women broke bad. And this is like a quote because I it definitely seared into my mind. <laughs> but it was it was like, okay, so that's a no. It's like a clear no for me, right? And also a lot of that stuff helped me sort of shape my argument, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like shape what I was trying to say because I felt, you know, my ultimate goal with the book is that this changes the narrative on the story. So I, that was like the motivating impulse behind all this work. Well, no one could read this story and get to the end and not realize that the system is fucked up. Like there's, it was just not, it would not be possible to read, read the book and not, not think that. But then I feel like there's this trap for a book like this, where this kind of like, providing solutions versus like quote unquote becoming an advocate mm -hmm. and i always feel like you read the book review you're in no in situation because you read the book review where someone's like they didn't really provide any solutions mm -hmm. you get criticized mm -hmm. for that but you also can get criticized for like being too quote unquote activist you know yeah about what you want so you do attack that at the end and what was your thinking going into that did it just come naturally out of everything you'd seen you know what you wanted to say about what we should imagine could be different you know my editor had said like we should have something at the end that sort of talks about some of the issues more directly because part of my goal with the book itself is to really teach a lot like people a lot about the system without it feeling like i was teaching them right like so so i was trying to make it really like you know, the the chunks really tight and kind of keep it again with the pacing of the story and all that. So I didn't ever veer off too far from that, from the narrative, you know? And so it was a chance for me to like speak directly, which I basically saved that to the very end. I did a lot of reporting on the child welfare system outside of this book during that time with that in mind, <laughs> like how, what is, what would I have to say? You know, cause it is, it's like, I'm not a policymaker. I'm a journalist. I do think though that journalists can often be like, oh, I'm just like, you know, I just write stuff down. <laughs> but it's like, 
you know, I do know a lot about this now because I've been learning all about it. So I do have something to say and I don't have opinions. And I also, my opinion is a little bit, is not so like, well, it's bad (laughs) because a lot of people end up there on the child welfare system. Like it could be better, you know? So I try to push the argument into maybe a little more uncomfortable territory of thinking about, you know, what purpose the system serves and maybe how we could help kids without punishing their parents. And even could we start from scratch at some level or like fully redesign the system rather than tweak it? Yeah. And like how much we could do outside of the system completely that would actually directly help kids, which is money. (laughs) Essentially, we have no safety net and we and this is our safety net. We just take kids away from their parents. What if we I mean, I mentioned the child tax credit because there's like now a lot of good research around how much that helped, like directly reduced abuse and neglect. So now that the book's coming out, first, I'm interested in like, how prepared are you to like relive the experience of, of this reporting and even this story? Yeah, (laughs) I'm riding the waves. I feel like it's, uh, (laughs) it is tough. You know, I've had a break about six months between like when the book was really done and now that it's coming out, I felt like I legit needed to recover, like physically, emotionally, mentally recover. And I do feel like I have done that. It it definitely hasn't been easy to go back into the frame of mind (laughs) that I would, that I needed to be in to do the book. But I think this part's really important because this is the part where people can learn about it. I mean, this was, this is the whole point, right? Like that people do learn about it. So, you know, more therapy. I've been, you know, like I've been hitting up my therapist. (laughs) And also I think there's some kind of healing thing about going back into it after having six months away from it and not thinking about it. Cause I, I do see it a little differently than when I was fully immersed. And do you feel like you have to prepare the family for it coming out? Like, okay, now there is going to be some level of attention on this again. Are you ready for this? Well, this is the part that where I've been crying. So I apologize. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, Nathaniel passed away Mm. last Thanksgiving. So... Nathaniel was the one that was like kind of my touchstone in the reporting. So he didn't get to read it, but his family did. Like he had a family, like a grown family before he had uh, Dante and his siblings. So um, I was able to give them like a galley of the book. Uh, Dante is incarcerated again currently. So I haven't been able to really reach him he's been like moving around so I'm not sure how much of this is going to touch him (laughs) you know in terms of like he's not really in the world currently the outside world I mean yeah so you know I think the families are going I don't know how it's going to go for them I never lost touch with them I mean sometimes they come in and out because things are happening in their lives but um 
Yeah. So like, I don't know how they're going to, you know, I, I don't, they haven't read it. Like Tammy hasn't read it. Dante hasn't read it. Um, so yeah, we'll see. I mean, I feel a little, um, anxious to hear what they think of it. Mm -hmm. I probably should say something to them about maybe getting some attention again. Cause I think that is pretty hard on them. Like when the documentaries and stuff would come out, they would feel really blindsided because like people in their lives would bring it up and stuff and they'd be like, they didn't know about it. So, I mean, they know the book is coming. It's just, I don't know if any of us really know how much that's going to affect us. Well, you also have a job reporting, yes. <laughs> reporting other stuff too. Do you find that you now kind of take refuge in an ordinary story about an everyday non-traumatic experience or that you're sort of driven more into this type of reporting? I think in the short term, it's been helpful to have a break. I needed like a trauma break. <laughs> and I even told, because so I work at the Texas Tribune and I do law and courts reporting, which is straight up any civil courts, Fifth Circuit. It's it's interesting. It's, it's much more mental rather than emotional, which was a good change of pace for me. <laughs> I will say I, I feel that I'm really good at the trauma stuff. Like, you know, I understand it really well. I put a lot of work into getting good at it. And so I do see myself probably, I mean, I'm at the moment where I'm kind of like unsure what's my next step. So that's kind of exciting in a way. I don't anticipate that I will like leave the trauma world behind me, but I do hope maybe that it won't be like kids because, you know, I have a kid, my kid's six. So he was one when I started reporting this story and I would like to not <laughs> think about bad stuff happening to kids for a little while, I think. I think that that would be fair. That would be fair for you to be allowed to do that. Yeah. Well, thank you for, for spending this time with us. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for having me. These were great questions, too. That's all for this week's show. Roxana's book is called We Were Once a Family, a story of love, death, and child removal. Thanks to her for spending this time with us on the show. Our editor this week is Gabriela Saldivia. Susan Peterson handled our show notes. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. I'm Evan Ratliff. Thanks for listening. We will see you next week. Support for Long Form this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks that you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The Listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier.